Well, I didn't think I'd be back quite this soon, but after everything that went down this past week, and I just felt the need to make another edition of the Ralphie Report radio podcast. Puff's basketball squad struggled once again. Another tale of two halves type of game against Utah. I'll go into exactly what went wrong with this team and how they can get back on track. No, a lot of people weren't paying attention to this because it's an event that kind of flies over the radar for a lot of folks, but the NFL Players Association game was on Saturday. Two buffs, I think, really improved their draft stock in that. I'll get into why. And then in the Shrine game, another buff is raising a lot of eyebrows and making NFL teams want to take a second look at him. I'll tell you guys who that is. First off, I want to start off with what happened, though, today in the NFL championships games. Because this is a topic that needs to be discussed, that is very under-discussed. The officiating in the NFL is a problem. And I don't want to blame on the, or to say that the refereeing or what may have you decided the outcome of either game because I don't necessarily think that's the case. I also don't think that one play decides the outcome of a game on, every, on, on, any, on any given afternoon or evening. So I don't think the officials swung the outcome of the game. But I will say this. There were dismal, horrible calls in both games that greatly affected the trajectory of them and definitely played a role in the impact. They weren't the singular force, but they definitely played a role. And to me, that's not okay. There shouldn't be officiating deciding the outcome of games where millions of dollars are at stake. First game between the Rams and Saints, there's a pass interference penalty when Nikel Roby Coleman arrives at Mark Ingram, clearly early, knocks him on the ground when the ball is about a foot away, no call. Obviously, Saints head coach Sean Payton was livid. After the game, he called the head of officiating, Al Riveron, who admitted to him that he made the wrong call. Had that been caught, or had that play been called a pass interference, rather, it would have been a Saints first down inside the 10, and with the Rams only having one timeout, they would have pretty much been able to run the clock down, kick a field goal, and end the game, and win it like that. Walk-off win. Instead, the Rams got the ball back, or the, the game went into overtime, ultimately, as the Rams got the ball back, went down the field and tied it. Drew Brees threw, threw an interception, and the Saints went down the field and won the game on a 58-yard field goal from Johnny Hecker. Or from Greg Zerline, excuse me. I get the Rams special teams guys confused because they're both so talented. But anyway, I just don't like seeing that. Now, in the Patriots-Chiefs game, Chris Jones puts his arm around Tom Brady. The refs say he went for his head area, call a roughing the passer penalty, which extended the drive and gave the Patriots great field position. Penalties, in my opinion, should be like challengeable calls or calls on the field that you're able to challenge more specifically. This shouldn't be affecting the game this much. The players and coaches and organizations work too hard for officiating to play this large of a role in the game. 
And I think now part of the problem is that the officiating is so bad that there's just a lot more visibility in the situation, especially with all these camera angles that go in slow-mo and you can see exactly what happened. It's, it's a problem and it needs to be fixed. Whether they hire more full-time officials, whether they have a replay or a number, you're, give coaches an extra challenge to challenge potential penalties, I think it needs to happen. Yes, maybe it'll slow down the game a little bit and the pace. And there might be a little bit more, some more commercial breaks, which I know fans hate. But hey, at least they'll be getting it right and they won't be having this large of an effect, which is, it's, it's really gotten out of hand. Just hope something changes. Anyway, I'm ranting now. Let me, let's, let's, count, let, let's get down to some buffs talk here. NFL Players Association game, three buffs participated. Trayvon McMillan, Juwan Winfrey, and Javier Edwards. The guy I think who made the biggest impact was Trayvon McMillan. He had 36 total yards on five touches, two rushes, three receptions. On top of that, though, he had a really good week of practice. And at the Players Association game, it's not just about how you perform in the game itself. There's scouts and coaches and personnel, big-name personnel people watching the practices throughout the week. They want to see how the players perform. I remember, it really is an all-star game in its truest sense. Guys don't get a whole lot of time on the field. So in, some case, in many cases, you, don't, you can't really see their full potential in the game, which is okay. But what I think Trayvon did, and this was important, is I think he showed that he was a Swiss Army Knife type player. Coming in, he was kind of seen as a bruiser back, which is okay because there's always a role for those types of guys in the NFL. But the fact that he was able to catch a couple passes out of the backfield, show off his skills in pass protection, I think that's exactly what scouts wanted to see. He showed how well-rounded he is and that he can be an everyday, every down back, which is huge. That's, that's what he needed to show, in my opinion. He didn't need to go out there and wow people with his performance. Yes, it would have been nice. But still, I think McMillan showed that he has a lot of value, especially as a late-round pick. And there's a lot of running backs who are taken in the later rounds. Jordan Howard from the Bears, taken in the fifth round. Most notably, former buff Philip Lindsay went undrafted last year. He earned a trip to Tampa, the Pro Bowl in Tampa next year, uh, in next week, excuse me, not next year. So now that scouts kind of have their eyes on these later round running backs, McMillan really showed his worth. And I think he's going to make a team really happy come training camp. This is a guy who's been underlooked his entire career. And if he can find a way to squeeze into the draft or just get an opportunity, that's all you need. And that's all he needs. Someone else who I think helped increase their value was Juwan Winfrey. He had two receptions for 30 yards, but he made a highlight real catch, 22-yard reception in the corner of the end zone, over-the-shoulder type grab. Really impressive catch. Ultimately helped his team win the game. Not they, that they get a trophy or anything like that, but it is nice to win. And he was able to earn a little bit of extra media recognition because of the impact his catch had on the game. So, it's good in that sense. He needed to have a good weekend as well. Remember, he missed five games this year with an ankle sprain. 
And that comes after he tore his ACL two years ago, had to redshirt, and kind of spent 2017 still recovering from that. There's obviously going to be questions about whether or not he can stay on the football field, and rightfully so. But if he can find a way to eliminate those injury concerns, I think he, he's another guy who has value. He definitely looks the part, 6'3", 230. He's, he's a big guy. And he showed how good his hands are this weekend, especially on that one grab. And given that he had a good week of practice as well, that's, that was just the cherry on top. That just sh- showed scouts everything he's able to do. I still don't think he'll be drafted, but I think this maybe gives him a second look and gives him more leverage as an undrafted free agent who maybe gets signed rather than just getting an invite to a training camp somewhere. So that could have helped. That helped him massively in a sense. And in my opinion, there's always a place for bigger wide receivers in the NFL, especially ones who can run routes as well as Winfrey does. If he gets it, and if he, he, now he just has to show what he can do at his pro day. Obviously, I don't expect him to get an invite to the combine, although I think he could potentially deserve it. But if he has a good pro day as well, I think that could really elevate his, his, his stock. I don't want to say draft stock because it's hard to envision him being drafted at this point. But still, and he could, pretend, he could maybe sneak in as a late-round pick. Remember, for all the things I'm saying, all it takes is one team to fall in love. And if that one team was at the Players Association, if that one team was at, had representatives at the Players Association Bowl and had someone who fell in love, then he will get a good opportunity somewhere, believe me. Moving on to the game that was played, the All-Star game that was played on the other side of the country, the East-West Shrine game in Tampa, Florida. Drew Lewis, linebacker Drew Lewis is a guy who's wowed a lot of scouts. He was listed as number one on Bleacher Report's Matt Miller's list of winners from the Shrine game. And judging by a lot of what, pe- by what people have written about him, they're impressed. What's so impressive about him is he's the, he's today, he fits today's NFL's mold of an every-down linebacker. He's able to be on the field in pass coverage, blitzing, has good pl- closing speed as well. He can do a lot of things. Can play special teams. He didn't really do that as much at CU, but he definitely has some value there. And it's a way for him to maybe squeak onto the roster somehow. And I think he, could, he has the best chance of being drafted out of any of CU's uh, graduating seniors this year. It'll be as a late-round pick, most likely. But he fits the bill of a linebacker in today's NFL, which is going to bode well for him. It might take some time to adjust. And he could be a little bit of a project. But I think that minimally he'll be able to be on the field for a couple downs and he'll be a nice rotational player to start. Maybe even more. Definitely has a higher ceiling at least. Another thing that's helping him is that his uncle happens to be ESPN analyst Louis Riddick, who spent Louis Riddick, who spent some time working in front offices as well. Kind of someone who can hype him up and give that sales pitch to teams, so to speak. Not that he needs it, but it's good to have some NFL or some football in your DNA to give you that little bit of an extra boost. He's another guy I really like a lot. 
Worthington had a good week at the Shrine game. Evan Worthington, the safety, didn't really make that much of an impact in the game. But I think he likely did enough to elevate his drafts, his stock and his value just during the week of practices. Had a couple really nice pass breakups. Showed off those long arms, which is a coveted attribute in, in defensive backs, especially safeties who can cover. Teams drool over that because there's so few of them. The, the good thing about both Lewis and Worthington is they have value where a lot of other players don't. They might not be great players, on at least when you turn on the tape. They might not wow you, but they can do a lot of things. And that's, a, that's attractive, if nothing else. I think Worthington, has an extre- in particular, has an extremely high upside because of his good ball skills. Now, he did regress a little bit this past season, but he was battling through some injuries. And it was a tough season as a whole for the team. And, but, with that being said, college players' performance vary from year to year. And I don't think that should completely destroy his draft stock, even though his 2017 was significantly better than his 2018. He still showed what he was able to do and that he has a lot of potential as a player. With the right coaching, anything is possible. So if teams are just able to look at him as kind of a piece of ice that's been partially molded into a nice statue and view the good skills that he has and can find a way to build on them, that's going to that's gonna be huge for his success in the NFL. Anyway, that's all I have to say about the graduating seniors. Obviously, we'll have full pro day coverage for you on ralphiereport.com. I'll have a podcast coming up in a few weeks about where I think what's at stake for everyone at the Pro Day, what's on the line, and what they need to do to improve their draft stock. Maybe I'll try to get some scouts on here as well. Not to talk to anything too specific, but still. It, it would be just something nice to do. Anyway, moving from the good to the extremely ugly men's basketball team was flipping back and forth between the football game but it was it was another game to forget and once again the major problem in this one was the fact that CU was so inconsistent from half to half so inconsistent and that's ultimately what killed them and once again it was coming out slow in the first half that was really bad they trailed 41-19 at the break. We're down by as much as 28 in the game. At 11 turnovers in the first half. It, it, it just, it just, the number of problems go on and on and on. This is just not a team that's performing right now. And when you come out of the gate slow, it's hard to come back. And they're now learning that the hard way. Because guess what? When you play a non-conference schedule... You can, come, you can get off to a little bit of a slow start. You can, give the, you can spot the opposition a couple of points. You can rebound from it. But when you play a good defensive team like Utah, one that can score the ball consistently, or even any of these other teams in the Pac-12 that they struggled against early on in conference play, that's simply just not going to cut it 
I don't know how else to, I don't know what else to say. They gave up nine threes to Utah. Deshaun Schwartz was good, but just like everyone else, he couldn't find his rhythm in the first half. He had 11 points in the second half, but none in the first. I think it's, become, it's starting to become a coaching issue at this point. I love how Tad Boyle has taken accountability for the issues the team's faced. I applaud that, believe me. But they lack effort. They lack focus. And most of all, they lack mental toughness. Although they did show they were able to, they weren't going to get lie down and give up in the second half today, which I applaud. They're not lacking in the effort department, at least not when they're down 28 points, which is important. But they're just not able to put a consistent full game of basket, 40 minutes of basketball together. And that's really what's killing them right now. Even worse, they don't really have guys who can score. And those who score, don't do score, and people who, players who they are depending on, most namely Evan Batty and Tyler Bay, are not able to stay on the floor. Both of those guys were in foul trouble by the time the second half began, which kind of handcuffed Boy in a sense. Because what's he supposed to do at that point? He's limited in who he can play. I applaud him for taking accountability and responsibility for what's happened with the team, not pointing fingers. But it come, there comes a time when things must change, when you need to see a better effort from the team, when you need to score the, see them score more points, when you need to see a more cohesive performance. None of those things have happened since conference play started, which me, me, leads me to believe that a shakeup might be in store in the coming future. Because it's unacceptable. They need to find a way to pay attention to detail and eliminate these little mistakes, which eventually turn into big issues with the team. Because that has really killed them. The lone bright spot today that I do want to draw some attention to was Shane Gatling. Ever since Gatling transferred from the JUCO level, I said they were expecting big things out of him. For a team that struggled on offense mightily last year, Gatling was brought in to score the basketball. He has the ability to do so, too. Good shooter, especially from the outside. We just really hadn't seen much. But today, I really saw Gatling come into his own. Shooting without hesitation, had confidence in his shot, knew that he needed to step up, could see it in his eyes. He had 21 points. The main problem was he only shot 33% from the field. So while he was cutting it loose more often, he wasn't making as many of them, which I think is where the real problem lies. However, he was 6-for-6 six six from the free throw line, which is big because this team has struggled from, free, from the strike. Stripe, rather. And going forward, that could help them a lot, given the circumstances. Having a guy who can consistently knock down shots from the line. That could, that could be a big thing. But at this point in the year, I want to challenge Deshaun Schwartz to be consistent. And I'm not trying to throw subs at him. And I'm not trying to criticize him. I think he's a good player. I just think that we need to see it more consistently. 
We need to see it from quarter to quarter, from game to game. Even from time on the floor to time on the floor, from when he comes on to when he subs out to when he comes back in. Seems like we see a different Deshaun each time, which is where my problem is. He's a good player, and I think he does have a bright future. He just needs to work on some things. Now, after the game, Tad Boyle said that they buried themselves in the first half and that he would like to have a conversation with some of the players, a heart-to-heart. I wonder who he's having a heart-to-heart to and what it's about. If only I could be a fly on the wall in one of those meetings. I would have a team meeting to start, though, because it's not, this isn't a single-person single issue. This is a universal effort. Basketball is a team sport, and everyone needs to step up right now. And there's, definitely, there's certainly enough blame to go around. Lucas Seward is another guy I, expect, I expected more from who's kind of stagnated. The team is not scoring points right now, and this is going to end ugly if things don't turn around soon. And they don't start scoring, and they don't start playing efficiently, and they don't start falling asleep and making careless t- mistakes on either end of the floor. These are the little things that kill you. And it's easy to tell that there's a little bit of a snowball effect when they're out there. There's a missed shot, an easy transition bucket on the other side of the floor, and then a turnover. Things just start to snowball quickly for this team. Not even a timeout can stop the bleeding sometimes. They need to focus more on the fundamentals of basketball and getting back to that aspect of it. That's how they're going to get back in the win column. Playing fundamentally sound basketball, finding ways to score points, not turning the ball over. It'll be the little things. When, you think, when a lot of people think of college basketball, they think of all these sophisticated offensive plays, big shots. But in reality, it's all about being fundamentally sound, and the Buffs are not doing that right now. They have another tough trip coming up, too. Might not look tough on paper. Stanford and Cal are easily the two worst teams in the entire conference. I don't think there's any debate about that. But if Colorado doesn't go in there ready to play to either of those games, or even one of the two for that matter, they will lose. Remember, they're playing arguably the worst basketball of the season of their season right now. They're in kind of a dire situation with McKinley down, everyone struggling, the team not in the right place mentally and physically. Oh, and did I mention that the next two games are on the road? Which is very a diff- very difficult place to win. So they have a lot of work to do. And this is, this is going to be something that's on, on, on the long haul too. But I do expect them to be better the next game. Or I expect a change to be made in the offseason. Because this is unacceptable. They look like a high school. They're making high school team type mistakes out there. And given the talent they have on the roster, like I talked about in my last podcast, to me that's simply unacceptable. When you look at the great teams in the sport, they don't make these types of mistakes. I'm not saying the Buffs have to be that type of team by any means, but they do need to play better. 
and they do need to do things that don't kill themselves. They can't have death by a thousand paper cuts, turning the ball over 11 times, only scoring 19 points in the entire first half. These are not ways you win a basketball game. Whether it's locking in our focus and focusing more, I don't know what Tad Boyle's going to do at this point. Maybe he needs to play psychologist a little bit to try to get his players in the right place mentally. But either way, something is going to have to give very soon because this is unacceptable. And judging by the fact that Rick George arranged a Mel Tucker Denver meet and greet on the same day as the Buffs' homecoming game against Oregon State a week from Thursday, he's getting fed up too. He doesn't see the basketball program as, as important as the football. And more so, Tad Boyle was not the guy he hired coming in. So he might want his own guy. But I do know that these empty arenas, the event center being maybe a quarter full on a good night, an empty student section, silly promotions to help fill the seats after a fan base that was so excited a year ago after they upset Arizona. Was very excited five years ago when Boyle led them back to the tourney for the first time in a while. That fan base is getting fed up. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the show this time around. And I'll get back to you again even sooner the next time. I'm Jack Stern, signing off.